Hello and welcome to the Horde History Podcast, educating you on the dark, twisted, and morbid truths of our past. I'm David Cheney. And I'm Amanda Sergent. On this podcast, we'll be delving into the 1918 Spanish flu, the most devastating pandemic in world history. normal part of our lives. Every winter, we're advised to get our flu shots, wash our hands, use plenty of disinfectant, cover our mouth when we cough, etc. Your average flu virus can be very dangerous to those with weaker immune systems, most notably the really young and the really old. And it's responsible from 3,000 to 50,000 deaths annually. However, 100 years ago in 1918, it wasn't a normal virus, a normal influenza. In a span of two years, it infected 500 million people worldwide. And just looking at that as a ratio, that's one in three people worldwide had this flu. It killed 3-5% to 5% of the world's population, and it took more lives than both world wars combined. It also dropped life expectancy in the United States by 10 years. And as I said, flu outbreaks usually kill the really young and the really old, those with weaker immune systems. But this flu predominantly preyed on healthy young adults. Yeah, and many people, whenever they think of the Spanish flu, they're like, okay, it's called the Spanish flu. So obviously, it originated in Spain, and most of the deaths happened in Spain. And that's just not the case. Yeah. The reason it's called the Spanish flu is because it was widely reported there because Spain remained neutral in World War One. And thus, media was not censored, so papers could publish freely about how many were affected, uh, what the deaths were. But in co- countries that had uh, troops in the war, they simply couldn't afford to have a flu in the background to lower morale. So they had media blackouts in, co- in countries like Germany, Britain, and France, and even in the United States where uh, Woodrow Wilson passed the Sedition Act, and it wouldn't allow any negative press that would hurt the war efforts. So papers had a difficult time uh, attempting to discuss the flu unless they were discussing about it positively. So in yeah. neutral Spain, there was no such law, so they didn't have to worry about that. Uh, there are a lot of theories about where this flu actually began. And some of those theories place the disease in East Asia. But the two most widely accepted ones have the outbreak beginning in either the United States heartland or in a British Army training camp in Etaples, France. So this training camp was enormous. 100,000 soldiers occupied it on any given day. That meant the the conditions were ripe for a disease outbreak. The British Army had previously experienced outbreaks in their army camps in other wars. They had to deal with things like typhus and cholera. Well, in the winter of 1916, following the Battle of the Somme, dozens of soldiers in Etaples fell ill, and they complained of aches, pains, cough, shortness of breath. Forty percent of those who fell ill succumbed to the illness, and they possessed a very peculiar symptom. Their skin turned a very odd shade of lavender. The other theory, the one where the flu began in America's heartland, On March 4th, 1918, in the Funston Army Camp in Kansas, 
we have the first recorded case in the American outbreak. The company Cook is reported sick. On March 11th, more cases of the flu are confirmed in Fort Riley, Kansas. And by noon, over 100 soldiers are said to have been in the hospital. Now, regardless on where this illness began, the conditions for its spread were the same. Both locations are army camps, and this is World War I. Mm-hmm. We have massive movements of people, troops going all over the world. Super easy to spread this disease from continent to continent. Absolutely. And I find it ironic, to say the least, that the first recorded case in the United States was a company cook, of all people. Because that's they're touching food all the time, and so that just kind of allowed it to explode in that area. Exactly. And uh, this virus originally existed in birds. Uh, Mm -hmm. It mutated until it was able to be communicated to humans. Well, in 1918, you know, we have army camps. We have to have livestock to feed our troops. So on these camp, in these camps, they had uh, a lot of birds for slaughter, Mm -hmm. which meant that they were in close proximity to these disease vectors. The illness actually came in three waves. The first wave was in spring of 1918, and this was basically a normal flu season. It was generally mild, typical flu symptoms, and the patients recovered in a few days. And the only real deaths that happened were older people and younger people, as is normal with flu seasons. Yeah, it was pretty average. Yeah, definitely. However, in the fall, the second wave, uh, the... Influenza became highly contagious, and victims died within hours by suffocation. And I don't know about you, Amanda, but that scares me to death because that is one of my fears, is that I have suffocation. I cannot imagine uh, what these patients were going through because the doctors were trying to figure out how to help them, and they didn't have anything uh, to use to help them. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that it was just a terrifying and horrible way to go. Definitely. The last wave was in the spring of 1919, and while this was less lethal than the previous fall, it was still more lethal than the spring of 1918, and uh, it caused many deaths. So the symptoms of this flu, uh, it began pretty normally. You would have your chills, fever, fatigue, nausea, aches, vomiting, diarrhea, etc., But then dark spots would appear on your cheeks, and the victims would turn color as pneumonia set in. The body would slowly suffocate as the lungs filled with blood and other fluids. A physician at Camp Devins Hospital near Boston wrote to a colleague, These men start with what appears to be an ordinary attack of influenza, and when brought to the hospital, they very rapidly develop the most vicious type of pneumonia that has ever been seen. Two hours after admission, they have the mahogany spots over the cheekbones, and a few hours later, you begin to see the cyanosis extending from their ears and spreading all over their face. That term referring to a person turning blue from lack of oxygen. It's only a matter of hours, then, until death comes. It's horrible. We've been averaging about 100 deaths per day. For several days, there were no coffins, and the bodies piled up something fierce. Yeah, and at this point, the government simply couldn't ignore it anymore. They've done the media blackout. They've basically kind of ignored the problem. But with reports like this from doctors, they knew that they were losing more citizens than 
uh, overseas in the war. And so citizens were ordered to wear masks in order to prevent the spread of diseases. Uh, schools, theaters, businesses were closed and so that they could quarantine uh, the disease within the houses that were affected. Uh, people would avoid shaking hands in fear of spreading the disease. And the government was running out of room, so they needed somewhere to put these sick patients. So they started looking to schools, private homes, basically any building that wasn't being used at the time because it was closed because of the epidemic was being used as a makeshift hospital. Yeah, and we actually have a uh, photograph on our website that shows a makeshift ward being set up in a municipal auditorium. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even though these makeshift hospitals were popping up everywhere, the emergency aid in cities like Philadelphia, for instance, which is a large city, uh, they couldn't get volunteers to come out and help. They would beg volunteers to please take in some of the sick or just attend to the patients that they had, but volunteers would not come. They would not leave their homes because they were scared of getting the disease themselves. And you can't really blame them. Uh, after seeing what maybe family members or their friends have gone through. And this fear that was in each individual emptied places of employment, and the cities were ghost towns. Yeah, especially during that second wave, there was a lot of public fear because they weren't getting a lot of attention from the media. They didn't really know what was happening. Mm -hmm. And all these people around them were just dying. So that sort of begs the question... Why was this flu so deadly? And there are several different theories to try and explain why this flu killed as many people as it did, and why this flu preyed on those who were young and able-bodied. So, one of these theories comes from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and it hypothesizes that people born after 1889 were not exposed to the strain of flu, and they didn't have any immunity. Whereas the elderly had been exposed to a similar virus in their youth, and another outbreak of flu after 1900 would have provided partial immunity to children. So basically, the old and the young had already been exposed to a similar type of this flu. They would have had antibodies in their system to fight against the 1918 strain. Whereas able-bodied young men and women wouldn't have come in contact with any sort of flu that would have given them a natural resistance to it. Absolutely. And the World War I going on didn't help the situation either. It provided the perfect storm and the best circumstances for a pandemic to spread. There was malnourishment. There was overcrowded medical camps and hospitals. There was poor hygiene. And at least for the United States... Many of their best medical personnel were overseas attending to the wounded soldiers that had been injured in combat, and thus there was a shortage of medical professionals in the United States to actually address uh, the pandemic. The next theory is actually one that I personally favor, and it has to deal with aspirin. So in 1918, Bayer's patent on aspirin expired, and this meant that a bunch of companies rushed into the market making their own aspirin medication to try and make some profit, and this greatly increased the aspirin supply. Well, Bayer fought back with this market increase by doing an intense advertising campaign. This all coincided with the flu pandemic. 
And at the time, they didn't really know a lot about aspirin poisoning. So the Surgeon General uh, came out in September of 1918 and said that aspirin had been used in foreign countries to treat this new type of flu and that it had helped greatly relieve the symptoms. They went on to recommend 8 to 31 grams of aspirin per day. Today, the recommended dose is no more than 3 grams. So even the minimum recommended dose is more than today's recommended dose. Doctors were literally feeding their patients aspirin by the fistful. They, they stuffed their patients' faces full of this medicine, trying to give them some relief. And what happened was a lot of them probably got aspirin poisoning. Aspirin mm -hmm. poisoning, as we know, can lead to a lot of problems with your blood as aspirin thins the blood, but it also causes hyperventilation and pulmonary edema, fluid in the lungs, like the symptoms of suffocation and pneumonia that a lot of these flu victims suffer from. This could also explain the high death rates among young adults because many young adults were more willing to try new treatments and a lot of those, like those in the military, were treated in hospitals with actual medical personnel. They were more likely to be in a hospital, to have a nurse, to have a doctor. Children were treated at home. A lot of the elderly would have been cared for by relatives. So this could also explain the high death rates among young adults. One of the last theories is that it was an immune system overreaction. Recently, researchers unearthed a victim of the 1918 pandemic in the permafrost of Alaska, where they were able to uh, replicate the virus of 1918. They went ahead and infected several monkeys with this virus. And one of the things that kind of surprised them and that they determined was that the monkeys' immune systems just overreacted. And this could explain why many of the individuals in their 20s and 30s with healthy immune systems uh, were most affected and had the highest rate of fatalities. I think the scariest thing about the 1918 Spanish flu is that flu epidemics like this are not over. They are not a thing of the past. The Spanish flu is classified as a subtype of the H1N1 virus. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Yeah, that's right. The 2009 swine flu was the same type of virus as the 1918 Spanish flu. Yeah, it, it's scary to think about, especially uh, many public health experts today believe that we are at a greater risk for a pandemic, mainly because there's several factors that could go into spreading the flu quicker, and it would be difficult for governments to quickly mobilize to quarantine areas. You have things such as urbanization and po population growth in these areas that would strain sanitation efforts. Uh, the close proximity to individuals in these cities would allow for the transfer of the virus. Uh, you have the raised demand for food, and as more livestock continues to be shipped around the world, there's worries that cross-contamination could occur. There's even... Uh... Even climate change is a huge factor in this. Uh, with more and more heat waves and more flooding, 
that means that there's more opportunity for waterborne diseases to arise and spread and more mosquitoes. Uh, as the world heats up, mosquitoes can now live in areas that they previously didn't exist. And mosquitoes, as we are all are aware, are wonderful disease vectors. Yes, definitely. Uh, there's also the issue with global travel. Part of the reason that the 1918 flu was so bad is because it was during World War One, and you easily, you had people easily traveling all over the world, coming into contact with all sorts of different individuals, and that's one of the reasons it spread so quickly to so many continents. Now, with global travel, you can hop on a plane and be on the other side of the world in a matter of hours. You can be on and off that plane before disease symptoms even begin to appear. Absolutely. And it's not just people. Whenever we're talking about global travel, we're also talking about, uh, as Amanda mentioned, mosquitoes uh, traveling around being disease vectors to spread the disease. Uh, you have food being shipped from place to place, as I mentioned earlier. And even just transferring animals from place to place raises the risk of another pandemic affecting the entire world. All of these factors really concern public health experts today because this is a real threat that going through our daily lives we don't really think about because we think we have great technology, we have the best vaccines, we have amazing treatment centers, but these treatment centers are not meant to take in such a large amount of patients at once and the risk of maybe another H1N1 influenza virus becoming resistant to a lot of the medications we use to relieve symptoms for individuals is disconcerting to say the least. Yeah, and we think, oh, 1918, Spanish flu, that was 100 years ago. Surely mm -hmm. nothing like that could happen today. Surely we've become so much more advanced now that we don't have to worry about this. But swine flu, Zika, Ebola, all of these scares have happened within the past few years. And it shows us that we are still very vulnerable. Absolutely. Well, we want to thank each and every single one of you for joining us on this episode of Horde History. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we look forward to bringing you another episode soon. Yep. Be sure to like us on Facebook and visit HordeHistory.com to view photos, videos, other tidbits that we couldn't include in this show. And stay tuned for more from us.
Thank you.